there's a lot of therapy in this generation. If your entire method of becoming better is to interrogate your past and to fix the discrepancies and uh, hypocrisies within that past, then continuity becomes the enemy of health and progression, right? Like the very thing that they're trying to sell is the thing that is keeping you stuck. But just boiling it down, no one in that coronation, the coronation did not look like present day England. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. Well, Britain, in its own words, just remarried. Its people have a new dad, and he's a baby boomer named Charles Philip Arthur George, the third Charles to wear the British crown in around 1,200 years. So technically, we've just re-entered the Carolean era of British monarchs. On today's episode of Tell Me About Your Father, we'll unpack key moments of the coronation of Britain's new father figure, the symbols, the gestures, the old, the new, and the in-between, and we'll speculate on how King Charles III's reign might impact the UK and indeed the world. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Erin Hosier. Despite everything that's come out in recent years about royal finances and bad behaviour, statistics show Britain is still fundamentally in favour of its monarchy. According to a recent YouGov poll, around 58% of people in the UK think the monarchy is good for Britain with 21% saying it's neither good nor bad, and 15% saying it's bad. Not an insignificant minority, but still a minority nonetheless. So what does it mean that this archaic institution, this relic of British imperialism, is still soldiering on into and through the digital age with yet another white man in the top job? Joining us to piece together what the crowning of a new British king dad means is Kamel Ajazadeen, author of the forthcoming Man Boobs, a book of essays about art, musicals, love handles, and searching for love while figuring out how to love yourself and claim your space in the American dream. Before moving to New York, Kamel grew up in both Lahore, Pakistan, a former dominion of the British Empire, and London, its epicenter during which time he met several of the Windsors. We'll get stuck into King Charles and the coronation in a moment. But first, Kamel, thank you so much for coming on. Let's start it out by talking about your father. Tell us about your father, your father's father, your father's father, before that, your ancestral line in Pakistan. Um, well, it predates Pakistan, but just a quick clarifying. I didn't, I mean, I used to go to London quite a lot growing up and I never lived there for, uh, for school years or something. So in that sense, I'd always seen it as an outsider. But as you can probably tell, uh, I was uh, raised in an extremely anglicized household. Mm. My family, um, well, the family stretches back um, and they settled in the Punjab around the some say the 1500s and the 1600s, but generally have been involved with um, some form of politics or something there, uh, history for, you can trace it back going to the uh, court of Ranjit Singh, um, which is where the family name comes from. And that was the Sikh uh, kingdom, which primarily constituted Lahore as a city-state and then some surrounding areas. And that was, it was important because they ruled the Punjab, which is traditionally, it was, it was, a, it was a fulcrum along which, 
the British, when they conquered the Punjab, it was easier than to uh, the rest of the subcontinent kind of came under. It was a big, quite literally a big diamond in their crown. They wore it mm. yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> it was last smuggled out of Punjab. And then there are lots of stories about where, that, where the diamond comes from. But essentially the family um, is based in Lahore. And um, my father uh, is descended. There were three brothers in the court of Ranjit Singh. Um, and they were each given the title of fakir, which means uh, ascetic or beggar, uh, as the children in the schoolyard used to call me. And, uh, but it's not, it, it doesn't translate literally to anything. It's a family name. Okay. Rather than, okay. It's, no, it, it, it doesn't translate as Viscount or anything like that. It's, um, it's just a family name. But yeah, so it stretches back. My father's very interested in the history of the family. And so through that, I've kind of been, um, I grew up exposed to the idea of, um, of lineage in that way, but also a kind of colonial imprint anywhere leaves you somewhat traumatized by that idea, no matter where you grow up, because that's what it's based on, essentially. Can we talk a little bit about just a general history of colonialism for for us newbies? I know it's a broad subject, but let's just talk a little bit about the way the Commonwealth works. It's great to talk about newbies with colonialism because I don't think any of us are, right? I mean, even sitting in America, we're dealing with the with the ramifications of what it means to be Absolutely. an Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think that that was the extraordinary thing about what the coronation symbolizes, which is the tremendous, if not power, than acreage at least of the British Empire at its height. I don't think they left anyone unscathed. I can talk about a little bit about the experience of growing up in Pakistan. I went to a tremendously anglicized school. It was set up on the along the framework of a British boarding school. Mm-hmm. And um, essentially, it's one of the tools that the Brits used to uh, indoctrinate uh, young leaders of or the people of, uh, who would become uh, powerful within the dominions of Pakistan, what is now Pakistan, India, and you. Um, but essentially, they'd get the kids and then mm. raise them a certain way to believe. And so you indoctrinate them into this cult of white supremacy, which is something that years later have been able to unpack. Right. and look back at my own school experience, because, for example, we used to wear cravats before 7 a.m. I mean, I ask you, who wears cravats before 7 a.m. as a school child? Or it's it's a little scarf you tie around your, um, your neck. Um, or... Um, you refer to as what a proper gentleman does, or what, um, what manners you're supposed to, and you, how you're supposed to carry yourself. We had a tailor at school, and he would have to, so he would make all of our uniforms. Wow. And the uniforms were actually the great, the one great thing from the British educational system, mm-hmm. I found. Uh-huh. So That's what I found too. I went to the equivalent school in Australia, an equivalent school. That's one of the reasons when we met that, like, we kind of knew the same, we had the same signifiers, because we'd both been to schools modeled on Eton. Our, our mutual friend Salman Tour was on the podcast last year and he and I talked about this. Yeah. He went to school with you. Um, yeah. But anyway, you have the same signifiers. But the uniform, I agree, yeah. was and it's, actually kind of a relief having gone to school in California. Like, it was a relief and yet it's also very different. Um, one of the ways that colonialism, for example, exerted itself in my experience in childhood was that our language of instruction was English. And yet the way that you would talk to most people, uh, if you met shopkeepers or something like that, or you're on the street or with your family, um, that was Urdu and, and English mixed. And so there was this very clear cut division between what was considered an indigenous language versus what is a universal one. And the and the very clear hierarchy that that kind of projected onto not just my generation, because I'm, um, I guess, born 
two or three generations after partition, or like a, two generations after partition. But even it it became worse, or it's stronger going back um, in my father's generation. My father was went to school in in Britain, um, as did other members of my family, and so they have a very different sense of um, what the monarchy means. I don't think that there was the ability to have that conversation. In the 50s, when he went to boarding school, right. it was a very different way of interacting with the British Empire. Um, I mean, it's a very di- different way of interacting with the world. But I remember my grandmother was also exceptionally anglicized um, and used to. And it's through them that I accessed a lot of British culture, which, um, like I said, was present in my school experience. And yet, because of the absence of any actual white people, mm-hmm. the culture of white supremacy then started devolving into class conflict, colorism, and um, this very bizarre sense of uh, reversed colonization, which you, self-colonization. Um, and uh, that was, it was, um, it was, I don't blame it necessarily. It was, it was a way to be able to ensure that your child can speak and write and read in English and therefore go to better universities and they have a better chartered. I mean, English is a global language, whether or not we want to credit the royals or the colonials for doing that is a different thing. But I mean, it exists the way it does. Um, so yeah, in that sense, my own family experience with this was specific in that I grew up in a house where there was a picture of the Queen on our, in the living room. And my father was the honorary consul for the UK for many, many years. Um, and so th- what that meant was that he was a diplomat, but not a not an English subject, a representative of the English within Pakistan. Even if, as I say that now, it doesn't make sense <laughs> that something like that exists, yeah. um, let alone was venerated. So I grew up meeting a lot of the English. They don't like to be called ambassadors. They're high commissioners. Mm. It's a very different. When they came to visit Lahore, which is an ancient city, it's a very important city art historically. It's a very beautiful city. Um, and so whenever dignitaries and stuff like that would come to visit, that's how they entered my popular imagination, because you would get to either see them or see photographs of them. But they were always a, a presence, not the royals necessarily, mm. but this mythic past of when the British, the British Raj. Um, and there are ways that that, that kind of manifested. Uh, for me personally, I know now, uh, and one of the things that I write about in the book was this idea of, queerness and as a queer person I read English language speakers um, as being more likely to be less homophobic <laughs> because mm-hmm. I associated queerness with westernism which is something that you don't necessarily um, interrogate at that age um, but it so there are all these un- unconscious biases as Harry would say yes, <laughs> Yeah. What, what we kind of grew up with and it takes a while to be able to step out of that quagmire and see the water for what it is was there resentment towards the presence of this british hierarchy in terms of class there because it seems like if your family were senior members of this like upper echelon of people who were engaging with with elite british culture like i could understand why they'd be like oh it's fine there, there are lots of families that have enormous privilege that were not necessarily anglicized um, and that spoke Urdu at home. My own experience of that was just, uh, and I, I keep bringing it back to to me because so few of my my friends had that same experience. Like I don't know anyone else who had to see. My father was also very specifically 
um, very interested in the royal in the royal history, and he and he remembered the first coronation, and he remembers yeah. what they were wearing and stuff. And there was a this is a part of like the stories that we grew up. I grew up listening to, but I hesitate to to paint everyone else in Lahore with that paintbrush. I do not think that the royals exerted that much of an influence. I do. I mean, when they arrived, Diana came in ninety six. I remember, yeah. and everyone was a flutter at the idea that the princess was there. Um, Just her the, visiting. Just her visiting. She came to see yeah. um, Imran Khan, who is the erstwhile prime minister. His um, he was setting up a cancer hospital, and his wife at the time, Jemima Goldsmith, was. I think that's how the connection was. So yeah, Diana, they were friends. Yeah. Um, Diana came to law. The Crown then eventually said that it was about um, she was trying. She was dating a doctor at the time. So there was some other stories. But the royals are like the oldest reality television right. show. So right. This is um, if you kind of expand that into the way that their visits um, affect people. I imagine it's no different to when the Kardashians walk into a... Do they walk into malls? I'm not sure. But where do they walk? Anyway. Yeah. Like, um, to Craig's or to Nobu or to... Yeah. At the Met Ball. I mean, you're right. It's a soap opera that exists for everyone to consume. And their payoff is that they must travel to different parts of the world or the commonwealth and shake hands what right it's the step and repeat you're always on a tour branding tour just reinforcing the connection yeah there's always somebody on a tour and it felt a little bit abusive also mm-hmm. now when i look back at the way that the in the sense it's almost like your abuser coming back into the house to exert um, a level of control to say well i'm still here mm-hmm. Because the royals are all about symbology, right? Like there's which hat you're wearing, what um, they get off and are um, and need an entirely captive audience who are hooked onto their every move and their every because they're icons in the in the literal sense of the word. A lot of my art had to do with the interrogation of what iconography was, and I don't mean iconography in the sense that drag queens use it, but I quite literally this this figure that is beyond it, it it ceases to be human then it becomes a symbol for whatever else it is and a head of state is that but there's a distinct generational divide i will say that my parents generation is a lot less um there's a lot um the dissonance between being a royalist and being modern is a lot less confrontational i suppose in that generation because i i'm we all grew up with images of the queen. And I yeah. think this idea that just even her haircut not changing for 40 years yeah. allowed for some kind of continuity when there was, right? You see the same person in pictures with Reagan and the same person in pictures with Trump and the same person in pictures with Clinton and Obama. Yeah, yeah. Like you can, and, and my dad, and like anyone, right? Like, it's like a whole cornucopia of people. And you, you can then, I think that's where the affection for her also stemmed from is after a while you just got used to this giant oak tree who did you meet from the royal family and how did that come about what was your impression of them uh, so one of the first the ones that i remember meeting um of the main ones I, the queen and prince philip i remember we had an audience with them in 97 they'd come to lahore and the, uh, my father was being given an obe and they'd taken us the, to this place and we had to sit in a room and there was no protocol officers or anything at the time but my father because he was on reconsul was involved with the um, logistics of that trip and was host like taking her around places and stuff um so i remember it was a 15 minute audience it wasn't a particularly long i was about 12 or 13 and i remember spending most of my time staring at the queen just thinking but where's the money <laughs> like where are the 
<laughs> where the time because she looked like one of my grandma you know like she looked like yeah. a regular person you kind of uh, grow humble. up at that age well, where's the tiara <laughs> but then you, you actually i remember vividly she was wearing this yellow blue um like this disneyland yellow and blue colors which shouldn't have gone together but they did and the, the material is very fine and i thought okay well maybe that's queenly they kind of divide and conquer and you when you are sitting in a room and you're nervous, and I, I remember seeing the adults in the room being tremendously nervous, it was disconcerting. But then when they walked in, there is this kind of wave because just with anyone who walks in with protocol, I think, I don't even think it's them, but anyone who walks in with an entourage, they're very good at keeping people at ease. And I think that that's where, like Prince Philip, for example, a lot of the people in his later years were making fun of how racist he was with the off-the-cuff comments. My own experience with that was he was very conversational and you would disarming actually because he would say things you wouldn't expect mm-hmm. and in that context um you can see how you can see what kind of charm they rely on um yes. when they meet hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people when you have to create like this connection because i suppose they understand that that's the one time this person is meeting you so they're i'm imagining they're quite good at that so i met those two um, and then other people had come through Lahore. I didn't meet, um, I'd already been away when Charles visited and when um, uh, the his son, right? Like Prince William. Right. Okay. At around 13 or 14, I find it very uncomfortable. Britain as a, as the idea of Britain as home was very uncomfortable to me. It's one of the reasons I chose to settle in or even to attend school when I got the choice to go to college. I didn't even apply to places in England. I knew um, there was something not only um, smaller about it compared to America in my eyes, but there was also this sense of baggage, uh, colonial baggage when you're South Asian. Um, a lot of the experiences of when I, uh, earlier when I said we used to go to London for holidays and stuff, um, a lot of the English kids in the playground, I remember the first instances of racism that I ever experienced were in those English playgrounds where people coming up and, I mean, I'm not going to repeat the names, but English kids develop swear words real early. <laughs> they do. All kids, um, yeah. It's quite arresting coming from a place like my school where everyone looked like me. It was kind of instructive in a way to be in a to be surrounded by that kind of open hate. Mm. I've over the years now seen that it. I don't think it ever changes. I think it becomes more and more polite and more and more ratified. Um, but there's a they're kind of central hypocrisies to the to the English system that they haven't um, confronted. Um, and it's one of the things that I, present, present circumstances notwithstanding or even with them, the Americans are at least engaged in that conversation in a way that I find the Brits a little bit further away from. I knew that like I had experienced a level of non-belonging in, in England, despite growing up and reading Wind of the Willows and taking my own level taking my A-levels and that it had been the center, scholastically the center. But I knew something deep down it, they, uh, that I did not belong there. Um, yeah. I don't know whether that has to do with the royals at all, but because like I say, I don't necessarily think about them that much, but they do. If they represent continuity, they represent a continuity of that kind of, um, that as well as everything else. And they're which, on the money, right? Like Queen Elizabeth's face, right? Hmm. My first time abroad, um, my first college, when I went to college, was McGill University in um, in 
in Canada, in Montreal, and uh, she, the Queen was on the on the, on the currency there, and so it was a which was actually quite fun because it it, it felt like a little piece of it. it was like oh sweet I know you at least in this new play I did not know fish and chips everywhere <laughs> Australia's not going to put Charles on any of the banks right they're only keeping his face on the coins with sure edging towards anyway it's like cultural figures but yeah it's the same I do think he probably. Um, he's probably steering the ship while it's being dismantled. I can't imagine, I can't imagine people would put him on the money. I have a feeling people would rather put William on the money just because he's Diana's son than they would Charles. I mean, that's the weird thing about this. We were talking about this earlier, but the idea that Bridgerton, um, Shonda Rhimes show about the Royals and um, about like Regency era uh, matchmaking really, but then to take this very, to take this extremely race-based form of entertainment in which if you were historically accurate, you would not see a person of color. And yet for a long time, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, these became models for rom-coms, historical right. rom-coms. Um, and I think that it was brilliant because in her casting people of color in that role, particularly during the week of the coronation, you see that and you turn on the actual TV show, which is a coronation, and you are faced with the very real discrepancy between representation and you see it can happen and it's only when you see something like that that you can look at the roles and say you are unfailingly unchangingly unchanging yes the same yeah the coronation i I saw that there was that glorious singer in that in a yellow kind of um, couture dress and she was singing with diamonds and i thought yes but where's the only non-white member of your own family (laughs) right well, so many people said no. I mean, so many people said no to the Jubilee. So many American Idol, who seems to, which is really ironic to me that the, the yeah. judges of American Idol were the one celebrities that you could spot. It's like, there's Lionel Richie. Lionel Richie. Interesting. And they kept saying that, like, Lionel Richie's here. Lionel Richie's here. It's like, okay, we get it. A person yeah. of color. There's some, well, I mean, I feel like this is a, probably a good point at which, Camille, you're talking about the idea that they reinforce the same hierarchical racism i think which i guess is you know redundancy but speaking about the coronation i mean i think this whole okay so i think it's important to point out that this whole idea of family is central to the way that the monarchy in britain has rebranded itself from where they just just called itself the empire which was you know like taking a line from the romans really um, and what they used to call empire is now the Commonwealth family of nations. And it, you know, it's all about, we have, we are all bound together in this family. And it's like, well, the family was constructed through, you know, genocide, um, and no one had a choice, but. Well, also, is it a family if you're not related? If it, is it a family, if you're not even related, like what the coronation in that sense is then just pageantry that reinforces this archaic hierarchy that insists at its core that some people are born better and more worthy than other people, no matter how child-friendly or how many B-list, C-list celebrities will say yes to the concert afterwards. And now, obviously, you know, we have another man at the helm. So I, I wondered, just the, thinking broadly, we all watched the coronation. It was mm-hmm. a merciful two hours, not eight, like Elizabeth. Um, what were some of the standout moments for you guys? Looking at the photographs afterwards, you know, like just how much symbolism and 
and energy goes into like the two seconds that uh, the queen and the king are going to look at each other. And they, there was all this hubbub about, um, you know, they stared at each other and looked at each other in the eye and smiled. Like after it was all over on the balcony, like we've done it. Here we are. It's like Trump sitting there going, can you believe it? We did this shit. We actually got it over the line. I think the two things that they did that, that stood out to me was one, it was, I just was like this, just like the funeral. I was watching the funeral and then I'm like, this Which one? The one of Elizabeth. I, at a certain point, I looked at it and went, we are fucking crazy people. If, what in the fuck is this? Like a German housewife's body dragged around the country in a wooden box with a metal hat on it with stolen diamonds and everyone's like crying. None, none of them met her. The image of Charles sitting there in these like robes with this enormous ludicrous hat made of jewels and like if you just step back slightly you go he looks ridiculous oh he looks yeah rid- oh and yeah. the other thing the whole thing was the theme the pr people the marketing people behind this the central message that they wanted to get across aside from hierarchy 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 is this is all about the king as a servant it's all about service he said things actually said i I'm here to serve and not be served. Mm-hmm. This, this is not landing. I think one of the things about the coronation or any of these events, right? Because I, uh, at least my own exposure to however these um, British emissaries or um, the government works, and not politically, but culturally, is that they plan to the last detail, these events, because they, um, so Prince Philip's funeral, the Queen's funeral, right? Like these have been planned for decades before. And it's basically all Charles did, I suppose, for the 50 years that he was cognizant of not being king, but mm-hmm. also being, right? Like what else are you going to do but plan the day that, it's like planning your prom or something. Yep. Like you do it for 50 years. Wedding. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's, a, there's a point at which you recognize that the, that the pageantry requires control. Pageant, Pageants work when there's only one stage because you have the one person and, and like iconography, it's theater. Um, yeah. When you kind of, when everyone has a phone in their hands and they've got like different opinions of, 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 of how, of how to act or the history of it also, particularly with the, I had a feeling the Royals probably thought that four seasons of the crown would set them up for success. And yet one of the strange things for me, actually, while watching the current, I mean, I saw little bits and bobs of it because I don't think I could have sat through the whole thing. Well, two things. One was Charles's fingers, for which I'm a little bit worried. There is an article not- about that in the Daily Mail. Exp- an expert explains why Charles has sausage fingers. That's a headline. And someone got paid for that. And then yeah. people got paid based exactly. on the clicks of people. Right? Like there's an entire economy around this. Mm-hmm. It's not simply it's not simply the royals doing what the royals do. It's the royals. What I've found is that the control and the power of the royals are not actually like any powerful figurehead that you assume. It's not actually in there in their control it's in the courtiers right it's in the people in the managers and the people who control them and tell them where to go and how to do it and, and our gatekeepers the firm yeah well yeah yeah the the firm even talking about it that way is, um, but yeah well, i guess one was the theatricality of it and his fingers and the second was seeing camilla up there yeah and i was a little bit taken back at my own reaction to camilla because i remember being in london in 97 when um Actually, ninety-seven was like a. I was it. I, it was like I was a funeral groupie. I remember that year being. Um, I was in New York. I was in New York when Nusrat Fateh was a very, very popular singer. He died, and then Diana had died, um, and we were in London. 
and her funeral was being held then. So I was I, I was stand, I was one of the kids in the it like my mom took me into the the mall and we were standing and um, we were seeing the thing and throwing flowers and stuff. And I remember yeah. my family members being I don't know the world being particularly affected, so affected that no one really uh, cared that um, Mother Teresa kicked the bucket shortly afterwards and there were no flowers left. I remember that vividly. Good. But I the the whole kind of, yeah, I know, <laughs> there was this whole sense of. Um, I didn't necessarily feel it with Diana, but I do remember when I saw Camilla, I thought of her because I thought had things gone differently, she would have been sitting up there. And this was right. this whole, yeah. the expression that all of this bullshit for three generations has yeah. been leading up to this one anticlimactic, slightly sad looking rainy moment in which you had, he looked happy. And for that, I'm like, he looked like he was with the person he wanted to be. And I was looking at her and she looked completely horrified. Yeah. <laughs> and then unsure and yet also I just felt this um, kind of like sliding doors that movie with Gwyneth Paltrow in which like had things gone differently you see a different person I think that's what the royals get so wrong mm. that whole world is so deliberately rarefied and when you have a rarefied world by definition it doesn't want to keep in touch with the times it's not meant to and so yeah. you have them talking about them like Prince Andrew coming out in rose, but Harry coming out in a Christian dual suit, I think was my third favorite part because that's the kind of symbology that's just petty, right? Like yeah, that's it's just... so petty. <laughs> so petty. Right. Then third row by himself, no one would say hello. So here are some of the things that I thought were kind of astonishing about this, just facts and figures. Cost taxpayers in the UK 100 million bucks, no one had a choice. 100 million pounds, I mean, $25 million. They yeah. had a point at which they were going to have a pledge, right, where the general public around the world watching on TV were going to be prompted to do a pledge. And the pledge read, this is what it originally said. I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to law. So help me God. May the king live forever. That was what they actually had people say. This is something out of like North Korea... Or 1984. If you have God Save the Queen as yeah. a national anthem, that is nuts. Just, do you know what I mean? Like, just the, the, we're starting at 100 already. Like, yeah. we've got God, we've got a queen, we've got anointing. It's a very, it's the same with the Americans. We've got the sex pistols. All of the discussion about secularism within this country, one of the things that surprised me was that in God we trust, next to an yeah. Illuminati. Right. It's like, okay, so which God are we talking about here? And it's certainly not. The, the all-seeing eye or whatever it's 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 specific and a lot of people tend to forget um these things until they're reminded of them at at moments like this right like at moments like when um, when the super delegate suddenly became a thing when hillary's um election was happening it, it was an archaic but present moment of the american constitution and you kind of are made aware of them in but i agree with you in the sense that there's um Obviously, they're disconnected. I can't imagine that that, that their goal is not. You know what actually happened there was they did a survey. 165,000 people were surveyed and 87% of them said they would not recite it. And in fact, it was rewritten the day before because it was so like, so, like, like, how do you make a mistake like that? Just from a branding perspective, you just wouldn't You had someone in the room to just say. Well, that's a, extremely. Uh, extremely limited that and the other thing i think is it essentially we're all cosplaying or they're cosplaying as yeah. like the royals like when you say even the 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 coronation the royals we've had our other coronations the spanish king got cor- right. coronated or like you know the, the, there was a transition in jordan for god's sake the spanish king shot an elephant and was uh, chased out of his palaces like no, that was a <laughs> 
when you think of prince, princess, king, queen, royal, palace, you think of Britain. In a sense, every Disney princess is based on that. Every girl's dream of being a ballerina is based on that. You know, the idea that, and they're so intimately tied to that, that even Shakespeare wrote about their women. You know, the Mary Wives of Windsor is a very, it's, it's, it's odd to think yeah. that that kind of continuity. And in that, we then become essentially animals, right? Which is like going back to this queen bee. Mm-hmm. We love the idea that there's this bloodline going back. Um, and one of the interesting things is to see how that bloodline can exert itself and how they eventually become mascots. And whether that's important or not, I'm not sure. I think that the it's very clear that they're, out, not just out of touch, but also out of favor. The amount of the Caribbean colonies that are coming out and saying, we're just not going to accept them anymore. And that was particularly done after they went on a tour of that, which maybe 20 years ago, even 10, would have been turned out quite differently. Well, I the imagery that. from that was astonishing. The two of them standing on one side of the fence, the arms mm. of people of color reaching through a fence. I wouldn't suggest that that was just... One of the things about this is also the apologists of the of the royalists within these colonies. There are people within the colony of Pakistan included and people who think that it was a great idea. And there's one of the things that we grew up with, I grew up with, um, was this idea that the British, wasn't it good that the British came because they brought the railroads and they put railroads, right. India used the railroads to this day. India still does, Pakistan still does. And there's parts, my own experience of the city, for example, my own city, Lahore, is is... It, it, it starts out in a very tight circle, which is where the the palace and the, and the fort was, which is where my ancestors and people were in the court and stuff. And that was very small. And then it extends. And then architecturally, you get into the colonial period, which is where my school was and, and other things. And then after that, you get into the suburbs of modernism after Pakistan was created. But so the royal, um, the railway lines and all of those, those houses, they're still there. They're these gorgeous colonial houses. Um, and the railway office, despite the fact that Pakistan has no real great railway system to speak of, those houses exist and the, the officials still live in them. So there's this kind of brainwashing that takes place um, about the about the, the virtue of having had them. And it's, it's propaganda and it, it was designed specifically to, to, to carry that message, to say that even if we're not here, do not revise history to say that we were conquerors. Somehow we have to we're symbiotic, right? right. Like we're all family. Yeah, right. We're commonwealth. We're all it's the American special relationship. It's yeah. uh, it's it's the same thing across the planet. It's the fact that Hong Kong could be traded away like a like a poker chip between people. You know, it's um Well the thing with the railways, I remember you and I were talking about this a few weeks ago and you were saying, you know, the response to the British was we don't need your railways. We have our own systems. The same thing happened in um in China. I was at a museum in Hong Kong and there was a huge exhibit about how the British, the East India Company came to China and said, we're going to trade with you. And the Chinese went, well, we actually don't need anything from you. We have a whole thing going on. We don't need you. And the British went, fuck you. We're going to get your people addicted to opium. And they forced opium on people. And then they were able to make money off that. You know, just like this kind of a big thing. Part of that, um, I mean, part of that legacy is even in my own family and the idea that people, um, that went before because you didn't have a unified Indian country before that, right? Like there was princely city states, and so they went to one and then pitted against another and pitted that against another, and and it was a very successful form of colonialism. They did it all across the world. One of the ways that they were successful at doing it too was because they didn't replace um, local culture so much as augment it with their own BS. So 
they put themselves above it, but they never decimated it in the same, or in at least in the same way that the French would, for example, with their colonies, right? This idea that um, we're going to decimate everything that we come across and you have to speak in the way we do, which the English managed to do, but managed to do it in a way that made everyone else complicit. And even now, some of the foremost authorities on, on for example, in, at Columbia University, there was a white professor teaching Urdu here, or one of the foremost historians in in, in India on Raj Indi- period um, history is a white Englishman whose great grandfather was something, right? There, there are all these yeah. familial things that it, 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 it helps that also that bloodline lineage thing is so pervasive around the world that people don't necessarily see it as uh, extraordinary, right? That's what's so amazing actually about the American model because they do i mean you there is a sense of the same thing happening here the kennedys are the closest thing i think the americans have to a royal family and the way jfk was treated jfk jr was right. treated camelot the whole yeah. like thing yeah but that's the thing like if you watch the movie jackie the entire thing about that is her figuring out how to absolutely ensure the legacy of her family by holding a state funeral for him and she goes back and forth on whether to have it or not. It was about enacting this massive public spectacle to enshrine timeless reverence for JFK after his death. She didn't know any different, obviously. I mean, the idea that Jackie... Raised was, the debutante, right? Like, the, the, even the idea of what debutants are, the Souths, right? Antibiotic yes. South, the idea of what, so much of English tradition, in, 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 in terms of exclusionary English tradition, it, it, this idea of separation and it all comes down to your proximity to one person. Right. Um, your white grandmother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your white grandmother, or you know, essentially your white grandmother. And that book, yeah. I mean, I still find it, I, I don't necessarily, I can see the institution and separate it. I don't think any of the royals, for example, are going to be responsible for giving up power. I don't think anyone voluntarily gives up power. Even Harry wouldn't have given up power. He just wanted equal power to William, his brother. There was an interesting interview with Princess Anne that came out this week. The um, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation did a 20-minute sit-down with her, and she was asked some pretty pointed questions about the legacy of slavery and how she feels about the fact that Charles had made a public statement in Rwanda about the way that slavery had played out and the role that, you know, it played in sort of bolstering British empire. Perhaps I'm paraphrasing incorrectly there, but just the idea of acknowledging it. And Princess Anne's answer was really interesting because she said, well, I don't think this is the right, I don't think reparations is the right way to go about it. I also don't think that addressing that moment in history specifically is going to solve anything. But also, if you want to say that slavery doesn't exist anymore, you are fooling yourself. So she's really ambivalent. And Harry had the same ambivalence too. Left the royal family, but said, I still think there's a role for nobility. There's still a role for royals in in public. Like Princess Anne pragmatically stating, slavery exists in a bunch of different forms. What the fuck is this going to do? But don't come for my money. Like two headspaces at the same time. It's a masterclass in deflection because the question with the Princess Anne interview, for example, is not necessarily whether or not academically slavery exists in our, in our world today. The question is, what did your family specifically have to do with it and how much did it contribute and benefit from it? That's the question. Right. That's not a question they want to answer. So it's deflecting to be like, kumbaya, let's talk about this in a general. And a lot of the way that abusers 
are able to weaponize your own words against you is to start attacking the way the message is is being perceived. Uh, like change the method of the delivery, and then I will see. So there has to be a certain way that you address mm-hmm. it. Um, and then I will be. It's like with Chappelle. I remember when Dave Chappelle got into trouble. Race in America, the same. Yeah, and then he sat down. And he's like, "No, I'm, these are the prerequisites for which uh, you have to follow, and then I'll talk to you about yes. my views." It's like, no, man, we're not going to get. I don't have to jump that hurdle. I mean, Harry is a. Um, so I was born in 1984. Mm-hmm. But I think he's about three, four months older than me. But we, because we were at the same year of school, and sort of when I took my O levels, which are these set of exams you take around 15. Prince Harry was sitting for his O-levels. Yeah. And so the news was talking about that. And so he'd always been in the back of my mind. Is it like, oh, that kid's my age. It's kind of like when you grow up as Macaulay Culkin's age. And you're like, okay, that's what he's, you know. Totally. It's, you have this like... But I remember not particularly warming to the idea of him. I remember him coming, the stories of him appearing. He calls someone a, a racial slur. The Paki is used as a racial slur in England. Right. It was also one of the reasons that I was like, well, I'm not necessarily sure that abbreviation of my country is a is a slur but sure okay um but i get the the context in which they say it and it's ugly um but i remember that being one of the things that had been accused of him and he arrived in like a nazi costume and there was a there was a moment in which prince harry was not a particularly likable character right um and people tend to that that they like that transition right from that to this but that was one point, which is that I'm not sure Harry is a perfect <laughs> example of what mean what it means to be like a royal who's in touch. Um, but I also, yeah, I think that the the idea of the people's princess and even Diana, even my own versions of like how much I was raised to idolize her. A lot of that came because I have older sisters who really loved her, and my mm-hmm. every woman I knew really idolized her. And there was this kind of every divorcee I knew really idolized right, her. Right. Anyone who had walked away from a family, there was all of this kind of projection onto her. And yet, when you look at the Spencers, they're almost they're more aristocratic than the Windsors when you go through the lineage. Yeah. So it's not as if he was marrying into into this. The people's princess did not come from the people. The people's princess came from a very select, very um, specific genealogy that tied into this whole structure. And so it is complicated because then you're tempted to cast savior oh this is the good guy within the family that's a bad guy this is a, they're yeah. all kind of out of touch in an equal way and not just them but everyone in the tiers below them which is where the actual bs starts to mm-hmm. like with the crown you see the kinds of friends that they have and the kinds of I, i'm yeah. sure they're not the richest people in britain the prime minister's richard is like the king at this point um what's interesting actually is i didn't see that much of him uh in the he did do a reading in the mm-hmm. in this he did stand up and do a reading in that way where he talks to people and he sounds like he's doing children's television. Yeah, that's what I meant about this, this kind of like idea of representation. Like the the Rwanda stuff, right? Like if you're talking about Rwanda and they're talking about its connections to slavery, what's much more interesting to me is the fact that they're deporting uh, asylum seekers to Rwanda, which seems like this perverse way of, of dealing with it. Wow. But then a lot of that is... Um, a lot of that is they use people of color as mouthpieces to to give this very racist rhetoric. It reminded me of the way Condoleezza Rice was received during the Bush years, mm-hmm. which was when they say these kinds of things, suddenly it was you were meant to, it was legitimized. Yeah, it is odd. Mouthpieces and, and who gets to say what mm-hmm. and how is a is an odd way of, um, it's strange when you dissect it because none of it makes sense. No. <laughs> um, I want to bring us slightly back into focus in terms of Charles, I think it's fair to say, although Kamel, correct me if you think I'm wrong here, this idea that 
British monarchs are in kind of abstract way seen as parent figures to the British people is something that is there, but it doesn't actually pan out. And one of those shocking moments, and there were so many after Elizabeth died, was the UK's former Minister for Sport and Civil Society, Tracy Crouch, stood up in Parliament and said this, this is a word-for-word statement. Our six-year-old took my hand in his and said, don't worry, mummy, the king will look after us now. He is right. God save the king. And it's sort of like, name one way the king will take care of us now, or how is the queen taking care of us? This is so ludicrous. It got me thinking that if you've ever worked in any organization, the person at the head of it defines the culture that then filters down. Look at the difference between how America behaved under Obama, how it behaved under Trump, the way that Trump really enabled white supremacists to just ride down Park Avenue screaming out the N-word, which is something I saw. I was like, well, not surprised there. Meghan Markle marrying in was a moment of, oh, look, maybe these people are being saved from themselves. And everyone else in the empire went, wow, this is incredible. In England, they hated her. We don't know much about Elizabeth II's personality. She was born and bred to serve a specific role, and a lot of that role is not to be a witty, chatty host to be her. I've been rereading 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown, which is a tremendous portrait of the Queen's sister, truly extraordinary. And he's a whole chapter about how the Queen, one of her major skills was to never give anything away during a conversation. And there are transcripts of conversations between really interesting people and the Queen where she's just giving them nothing. And they're pushing and very politely asking a question. She will not give them a single iota of anything about herself. But I think do know a lot about Charles in no small part because he's a baby boomer with all the self-absorbed indulgence that comes with that. He's been making his personality clear to the public since he was a kid. So just the idea that he is the sort of, he's the figurehead, the CEO, this father figure of this family of nations. Here are some of the things I found out about him as a person. Just this, this is the standard he sets for people. He paid no inheritance tax on, on the $1.5 billion that he got from the Queen uh, that he inherited. That's because the Queen, no, no she's no virtuous maiden in this herself. She went to the British government in the 70s and created an act so that the royal family would never have to reveal what their finances are. Okay. He has been involved in several instances of honours for money, cash for honours, where people will pay his foundation money in some cases actual bags of cash were delivered no. right or gold or jewelry or yeah. that's their whole identity if we're going to treat the royals as if they're citizens of this country you should be paying inheritance tax you should be doing this the idea of what they are the reason it's so extraordinary is that when you zoom out a bit large enough you see or you realize every bit of land in england belongs to the queen unless if you pay for it right there's this sense of great that they were the mascots that people could relate to. In the same way that I was talking about Harry earlier. It's like, oh, he took the O-levels too. Yeah. They're just like <laughs> right? Like They're just like us. But they are just like us. And I think that the moment you saw Harry's fantastic ass in those pictures in Las Vegas, I was like, okay, right. from, like these are the first royal nudes. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a very different way of looking at it. I think Diana also did... Um, we did a lot some of nudes. Movies. She did uh, some nudes on a boat, didn't she? Well, Kate, Kate Middleton famously, you know shot by the paparazzi and that's really what um you know harry and megan were saying like we have no control over how we're exploited because our 
you know, the royal family is in cahoots with the press and it's all about this. And so... I think it's also generational, perhaps. There's a lot of therapy in this generation. If your entire method of becoming better is to interrogate your past and to fix the discrepancies and hypocrisies within that past, then continuity becomes the enemy, health and progression, right? Like the very thing that they're trying to sell is the thing that is keeping you stuck. But just boiling it down to the, no one in that coronation, the coronation did not look like present day England. No. Not at and all. It, for 50, 60, when was the last time? 53 was the coronation, right? So we're going on about 70 years later. Mm-hmm. They did congratulate themselves on having women involved. And then they had other <laughs> of faith. After he did the 79 minute long progression, uh, procession out wearing the crown, he stopped for a minute at the door, looked at, I guess, like a rabbi or something, and then turned around. And, and it was that was the concession to other faiths. So performative. Even with her, like I read about the tiara that Alexander McQueen did. Um, oh. The oh, yeah, the laurel wreaths. Yeah. I, I mean, I looked at that and I was like, is that diamonds? And I got really interested because it just looked too big to be diamonds. And you realize that they'd gone to enormous efforts to be like, look, we didn't do diamonds. We just got England's most expensive fashion house to create this this beautiful piece. And we 3D printed it. So it's not rich. It's okay. Right. And they were very weird. But then at the same time, they've got this ermine lace thing that they're putting on. Mm-hmm. With the Cohen Rule, which is one of the largest diamonds, and it does not belong to Britain. If you're talking about reparations, it's not so much. I don't. I think people are like, okay. One of the facts that I that changed my idea of how to, to think about not just the royals but British involvement with um, with South Asia was that the GDP of India did not grow in two centuries from 1760 something when the British first started taking over, um, all the way to like. 1947. So, I mean, even if you do it from 1846, which is when the, um, we call it the mutiny, they call it the war, we call it the war of independence, they call it the mutiny. Mm. And we were taught both versions in high school, but uh, it was called the uh, independence mutiny. And so then, even from that to like independence itself, GDP didn't grow at all. And so you wonder, and then you look at stuff like Sense and Sensibility, mm-hmm. and you wonder where this frigid little island which is obsessed with hats but has no sun, got all its money. You know, where did these marble columns come from? It certainly didn't come from the quarries of bloody yeah. Devonshire. Yeah, right. There's this simmering kind of resentment of being, of being gaslit. And I think that's where the reparation conversation becomes will become increasingly important is because even I, who have tremendous privilege in terms of my access um, because of being able to speak English and, and uh, having gone to a good school and then I got a college education there's no real, even I am sitting down in this situation and saying, I'm able to see, I want an apology mm. for an acknowledgement at the very least. That's the amount of money, like, screw the rest of it. Like, however much the cultural impact of that, the fact that I'm sitting here speaking to you in English, which is more my first language than Urdu or Persian or Punjabi or uh, any of the others that are spoken around South Asia. But that, that there's no acknowledgement that it happened feels like gaslighting. Because you're meant to expect that, oh, well, didn't we all grow together? And it's like, no, actually, we didn't grow together because you can see every Commonwealth country in disarray. And also queerness, I keep coming back to that because that's how I access the world, uh, my view of the world. And so much of the BS comes from British attitudes towards homosexuality. And they erase, there's so much psychic damage that that, that, that left. Um, and I think it's the same thing even, even here. Uh, yeah. I think... In the South, 
in going back to a conversation about iconography, icons matter. I think even as far back as 20, 20 years ago when I was a freshman in college and I, for the first time, saw Mississippi's flag, part of me, the first thought I had was, surely that's not, you can't put that, that can't be your state flag, right? Like, because you know right. what that represents. But there, up until recently, that was not a conversation that you could, or at least it seemed that that's not something, perhaps Aaron, you can talk a little bit about that. I, I, is that something that Americans grow up noticing? Yeah, things like the um, Confederate flag being ubiquitous all across, not just in the South, but in little pockets where people still get excited about who won the Civil War. Um, It reminds me of the conversation about like reparations in the United States. Like immediately people are going to be up in arms and there's going to be a million town halls and debates. And meanwhile, we are also just waiting to be able to talk about the history of our country and the legacy of slavery and get to call it slavery at the same time when, you know, you're not allowed to talk about it and books are being banned and, you know, it's affecting everything and everyone. And then it becomes a political issue, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I, the, the topics conflate in my mind because there's this idea of continuity, both with, southern um culture yeah. and also with english and so then you kind of are trying to figure out well which part of what are you continuing exactly right and which part of that, that world view um are the things that you think are lacking now it's um, true it, there is such a correlation between the american south and the british way of being where it's like if you are kind if you are polite If you, as a white person, treat everyone equally, whether they're rich, poor, whatever their race or background, then that's all you need. Northern hospitality has a vein of viciousness running through it, I've always... Right, bless your heart. When Kate came to Lahore, there was a lot of conversations about how pretty she is, how thin she right. is, how, like, how tiny her waist is, how wonderful it is that she gave birth seven minutes ago and appeared with a full blow dry in the corset. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she all of us? And I guess what they were really meant was how extraordinary it is that she's unlike the rest of us and therefore a confirmation that the royals are some different breed. Yeah. But what was interesting about this Meghan Markle, the, uh, even the fact that we call her Catherine, right. or like or, Kate, we call the other one Meghan Markle rather than Duchess yeah, Meghan. Duchess or, of Sussex, princess, yeah. or princess or whatever. Because technically she is a princess, right? What I found odd was that she, um, in the conversations around even the Queen, And maybe this comes down to the, what you were saying, Matthew, earlier about father figures and stuff. But there's a very specific way that women are expected to behave in British uh, culture, in the royal li- culture, right? right. Like and it's not so much that she, this one was braver, that one was stoic, this one was has been... Con- it's that you do not say anything, you are subservient, you are pretty, and you perform your role, which is has, essentially, has it's just... Dripping with misogyny. Oh, Princess yeah. Anne throughout this too. She said, "What's interesting is when you're a royal woman, you get treated as an honorary man, and it's like, she, yeah. all well, she also has deep dyke energy and mm-hmm. like a suit most of the time. But, she, but it was like, what an extraordinary I, concession that is. All you have to do to be treated like an equal, to, you're equal to a man, is be a princess. Like, how extraordinary." I don't know. To, to whatever extent that's true, I don't know. It's, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. The Crown alone can can confirm that I think that she was probably treated 
more like a man than her brother was by her father. And so she kind of grew up with balls in the sense that like this confidence of being, yeah. which I, when you ask about what Charles as a king would be, I have always thought of him as a child, I suppose, because he's always been the child of the queen. A petulant, not- petulant child, yeah. Well, let's talk about that concept of the heir and the spare. Right. I mean, right. that's a question about sons. And who... And feudalism. And feudalism. And I don't know, there's that whole... But I also remember coming of age with the knowledge that, you know... Though the queen has four children, Andrew was her favorite. Not even the youngest, but just the the penultimate child is her favorite. Um, yeah, the rapist was her favorite. The rapist. And so it's unfortunate for her that at the very end of her life, you know, he publicly, um, I guess, embarrassed would be the lightest word. Because it didn't seem to tarnish forever the the royal family itself. Um, But then what standard are we holding them to? Are we mm -hmm. holding them to the standard of a regular person, in which case strip them of everything they put, they have, and then there's no equivalent of that. I guess the the other royals, um, all the other royals, as far as I know, either the Spanish, who are quite scared to do anything, or they belong to the Nordic countries. And that's got a very different attitude towards ostentatious displays of wealth and always had the Protestants of They've always run in a very pragmatic way. Scandinavia has really pared it back and they are fundamentally more like regular people. They do live in a castle, but they're not, and they have money in excess. They don't have colonies, so it helps. You don't grow up knowing about them or or really getting involved with them. But going back to what we were saying earlier about the fact that the royals, they are the royal, capital T, capital R. They are the only ones you think about. Right when you think about royals and so that there's a sense of exclusive not exclusivity but like a like a corporate monopoly in which um the russian royal lineage is now projected into the british because mm-hmm. they were related to them and like if you go down the anastasia um rabbit hole yeah far you'll come back to the house of windsor you go to the german rabbit hole you'll come back to the house of windsor you go through spain you go through wherever and there's a slight bit of it that's exciting to think oh wow shakespeare you know it's like there's this connection to the archaic past and in that way it's like a theme park but they do have very real power but i'm more concerned i suppose we're talking about who who's more dangerous going forward in terms of who will affect things and stuff i'm more concerned with royalists than i am with the royals Mm. because at least the royals are accountable in the sense that they're public figures and we know what they're doing. In my experience, it's those the, the the secondary tier is often it has all the power without any of the visibility. There's something to do with royal deference that is very different. There's a certain kind of psychosis that goes with it that is really it's extraordinary. I think I mean one of the things I found about Charles was he's very interested in all these kind of obscure like homeopathic remedies, right? He found this guy who is a professor at Exeter, who had written a book called Charles the Alternative Prince about some of this, not a royalist, this guy. Okay. An expert in alternative therapies, but, therapies, but had written this stuff. So Charles goes to talk to Professor Ernst to say, hey, this is great that you wrote this book. Like, can you help by bringing some credibility to some of my homeopathic ideas, which I'm pushing on the NHS, which yeah. I'm lobbying the nhs to fund right so professor ernst is like okay sorry no 
some of the things that you're saying are not backed up by science and they're so way out that I can't possibly step behind this. Charles goes ahead with it anyway. Ernst writes an editorial saying these things in public. Ernst was then threatened, investigated, and eventually forced into early retirement through senior members of his own academic institution who were punishing him for simply writing an editorial. So there's this, I mean, aside from the punitive elements of it, it's, it's, it's also just the fact that someone was willing to then go to bat for Prince Charles because one professor wrote an editorial that was entirely rational, criticizing him in one way. That man was then ended by an organization. But there's a certain kind of irrelevance that has taken over the United Kingdom that is, you see it in Brexit, you see it when you go there. It was one of the reasons I didn't go to school there. It is not a, it is not a global superpower in the way it once was. This, was, this pageantry is a sort of nostalgic reminder to them that yeah. what they want and also the relevance that they once commanded along the the the, empire, the the world generally. But I find that that like a lot of the royals who were coming were the Arab uh, royals who showed up at the at the coronation. And what I find odd is when you think about the dollar amounts of how much people have, the English are not necessarily they don't even own central London. The Saudis own central. There's this sense of who would they vote for if they were regular citizens? I'm not sure it would be Labour. Right? Like they, I think they're quite happy with the idea. And why wouldn't they be? But if we're talking about their relevance going forward, it comes down to more, can you see Kate or William, or even for that matter, the other two who are in America, who is essentially this like satellite outpost of the royals, so the Americans can now feel included. It's like, see, Harry's the prince that did, it's like the Boston Tea Party version of the, of the royal family. Right. He's And he's even said, like, my mother would have moved to Los Angeles and now I live here. Now Oprah is his mother, so everything's fine. And that means we're all connected because Oprah is our mother, too. So Exactly. She's the queen of America. She's the queen of America. Queen of America. Purple, the the neutral purple. And also, like, uh, black royalty, right? Like, very specifically of... Tyler Penry. I, I went into a little hole about like a um, little internet hole trying to figure out because everything I knew about Tyler Perry came from I guess the late nineties, early two thousands when Medea the Medea films, right? Medea and stuff, and I'd seen some of them and they were very funny. I did not know the scope of his production empire, right? His, he owns and a studio in Atlanta. He owns a studio, and then there's also this idea of not creating content for white audiences. Right. Has to see the effect that that has on his career, which is to be one of the most powerful people in Hollywood that you never necessarily come across if all you're doing is scrolling mainstream white culture, like New York Times and stuff like that in terms of movie reviews, right? right? Like you necessarily come across uh, because he's not making that television series for you. Right. Uh, Which is, I mean, it was kind of indicative of of the segregation in America. Mm -hmm. Uh, That exists in Britain too, which is why seeing South Asians... Uh, I think at the moment, our, Scotland and the UK both have South Asians as PMs, right? And then the mayor is also Sadiq. So like, there's a lot of South Asian representation. Mm-hmm. Is Samuel Braverman South Asian? Sorry, I can't remember. The Home Secretary right now. I, I think she's South Asian via East Africa. There are all of these convoluted diasporic um, movements and diasporic communities that are there as a direct result of English royal decrees, right? It's the reason South Asians exist in Barbados is because they were brought there from uh, as cheaper labor or only allowed to come into the UK in the 50s or 60s when they needed to fill the factories or came to East Africa to build the railways, 
uh, in the late 1800s, early 19. Right? There's this the sense of even the diaspora of South Asians has so been affected by uh, where British interests lay. Right. Uh, that's when I hesitate. It's confusing because then you're you're tempted to collapse the entire responsibility of all of that onto the family that's in whose name it was done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very natural response. I'm not sure any of them are intelligent enough to to solve these crises. I wouldn't trust them with a dinner party, let alone uh, like running the world. Right. And eventually they're going to dismantle themselves. My own hope is that one of them turns out to be gay, and I will not say which one. <laughs> but I'm not sure that they're evolving at the pace that they need to. Um, but at a certain point, I'm not sure they're, uh, I'm not sure anyone cares, really. This is why I wanted to record this today so it could go out tomorrow, because I'm not convinced this is a relevant topic beyond Wednesday. Like, the larger conversation is, of course, but not the coronation itself. I was just like, this is a moment where we have a symbolic father being installed. That's us. That's our focus. But we're not going to, no one's writing about this anymore. It's the same argument. It's yeah. like him and Karl Lagerfeld. I know more about Karl Lagerfeld this week than I ever found out about Charles. Right. You were talking about the, the similarities with the Met Ball, with the coronation. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that, because that was last Monday. Yeah, that was last Monday. And I find that they, it would, just in terms of the coverage that they're given, yeah. there was a time in which royal events, um, I remember in the, I mean, I guess we all do, in the 90s and stuff, like if something happened, that uh, Diana interview or... Right divorce or um, the weddings or any of that stuff the world would treat it differently than they would whatever else was happening that week but i've kind of seen the same level of engagement in fact more so with the met gala mm-hmm. than with the coronation um, did you think but- that sentiment was down on the, on the met ball this year i think carla i felt something of a ghoul like an awful awful person if you weren't right within his little single pretty yeah. much yeah. but i felt like people were kind of openly down on it in- he was an asshole we know this is not new news fashionistas are not who I believe are tasked with <laughs> like representation is not part of their brand. No. Their whole shtick is exclusivity. Yes. And I think that when we talk about frustration, particularly in generational terms about what the world is going through, is this kind of push and pull between everyone deserves something and a very few people deserve something, which is a very basic way of looking at the world. But essentially it's where all of the fault lines in, I think when I look at America today, there's this idea of, on the one hand, America is, this, and part of the book talks about the American dream and my own version of what it was to come here and to participate in, I hate to use the word freedoms, but to participate in the in the culture of individualism that exists here. Right. But, but then there's also this sense of like, you want people to become billionaires. And then when they do, there's no system of taxation because you don't, right? There's this, there's this dissonance between, well, this is how, Elon Musk is essentially the perfect story for what an American success story is. And yet we, we can see very clearly that it's not what's going to lead to success in America, mm-hmm. for Americans. How do you claim to be a modern state with archaic, not just archaic, but but racist, yeah. uh, xenophobic and intentionally exclusionary uh, models of authority? But the big um, difference between America and the United Kingdom in this way is that the social hierarchies that are built... In Britain, you can't traverse them. If you no. do, it's an anomaly. No. It truly is a moment. It's worthy of a movie. But in America, it's the same because the chances of you going to a different class, there are very few avenues to go from class to class. One way to do it, I remember this Times did a series about this 15 years ago. Fascinating, following four different people at different classes. Each of them had a heart attack. What happens to each of them? 
Oh, that's great. They're really fascinating. Okay. And what it was showing was that there was really ve- there are very few ways that you're going to go from working class to middle class or middle class to upper class. One of them is to become a nurse if you're working class. You just bang, go straight into a higher bracket. But fundamentally, Americans still believe they can do anything. Right. When reality is you're not going to get anywhere unless, for the most part, you're not going to get anywhere unless you have money and access from the get-go. If you parlay your way into that, fine. But the fact is it's not as likely as the American dream will have you believe it to be. But that is a myth that endures far longer than something that is about, you know, status. Camille, you and I were talking about weaponizing our accents in America. And that's a very easy thing to do if you have an accent. But I got to tell you this story. I was in London. I was staying at a hotel in Mayfair. My partner was working there, so I was staying in the hotel. Arrived a bit early, sat down in the bar, very tired. I'm like, God, I can't check in yet. I'm just going to sit in the bar and wait. There's a chaotic woman near me, so I'm immediately <laughs> interested. This woman who's like talking to some guy, and she's like loud and a little bit drunk. And I'm like, oh, against my better judgments, I'm going to edge closer to see if I can engage with this woman. <laughs> Finally, I actually end up talking to her, and I'm like, what's your deal? Because she was a bit drunk, so I just went right in with the questions. And she goes, oh, when my mom's had a facelift, and she's upstairs, and I feel, oh, should I be up there? I don't know. I feel bad about that. I'm like, well, I don't know. She's not dying. It was elective surgery. And then the waiter came over and he said, would you, would, is there anything I can get for you? And the woman looked at him and went, if it would just take my phone, put it over there, plug it in, and then don't come back until it's completely re- recharged. Do not come back until it's recharged. Thank you. And I was like, whoa. And I had never seen that done so explicitly. And then she turned back to me and she went, yeah, so anyway, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to up in an hour. And it was like, wow. Oh. And that to me is not, that is survival, I think, for people who can't get through. They can, they learn if you just speak like that. There's a certain kind of unconscious bias we have in terms of, well, I mean, My Fair Lady was based on this. Yeah. Right? Like the idea of, like, if you speak a certain way, England predicated its classes on being opaque in that you could not enter. There was a barrier of entry. We were talking about this the other night where someone was asking me when I learned English. And and the idea that um, if you speak a certain way in an English accent um, or like within the accents within England, there's there's two or three accents that if you hear, you know they went to a certain series of schools. They have a certain kind of background. Their grandfather had a certain kind of background. And if their grandfather didn't, then they had enough resources to pretend that they did and now do. And so there's this, there's a whole story that goes with it, yeah. which is which is invented and it is projected and it's all coded. And I find, I mean, I, I do it myself. This is my natural accent in which I'm speaking, which is odd because I grew up and most people I went to high school with did not have this accent. People from my own family don't necessarily have the same accent. My immediate family, I remember, I didn't know why I spoke with a more English lilt than anyone else until I started seeing my parents from the outside and I recognized, oh, okay, he went to boarding school and my, all my early education was in, uh, was looking at these. And you you learn fairly early on what kind of way you're supposed to pronounce. And like going back to the school, they were we used to have recitation competitions and declamation competitions in which if you spoke in a certain way, you would win prizes. Yes. And with this absurdity in which I'm sitting in the middle of like the sweltering monsoons talking about the spring of an English summer. It's like, well, I don't, Right. I don't like, know what that is. 
boobs, but I'm sitting here sweating from my man boobs, and there's no there's no like spring around me. It's not like the 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 cascading waterfalls. And I thought, what the fuck are you talking about? Who cares about Cornwall? Honestly, like we're sitting in the middle of Lahore. Why should I know what the what the geography and weather of Cornwall is about? Yeah. So whatever Britain is, I found racism is a lot more obvious in America in a way that it you need to kind of decode a lot of stuff in England and read through the lines and it comes through. It's more stratified and all of that is true. It's an extremely racist country. I find that race is uh, more comfortably spoken about here. It's like brandied as an identity um, and identity and also a class. And which is odd because I've been called the N-word three times. I came back in um, January from a little time away and I've been called the N-word three times in New York since then. Mm different places and i'm kind of i mean it's increased in the in the years and stuff but what the funniest part is when you go up to a place and they look at me and they see a brown man with a beard and then i open my mouth and they suddenly get confused because like they think that cast of downton abbey is speaking at them and understand and it's deliberate doing that you then you jump ahead of them in line (laughs) it's like there's this it's like oh you got that card i'd pull this card and they don't quite know where to treat you how to do it America prides itself, of course, on being independent of England and the crown. But I think it's interesting how much that there's an inferiority that comes out. I remember when BBC America started on cable, like this is like 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And the ads for it were Americans explaining why it was okay to laugh at these things, explaining that it was funny, explaining that oh, I just think it sounds funnier when an English person says it. You know, like there's this sort of un- uncertainty about it. And the fact that you can unseat people is is this sort of... Well, yeah. I've had people get very defensive at me. I'm not even... When I'm not even trying to alienate anybody. So I'll go, well, you know, uh, here we go, another American pop cultural moment or something. And then someone will go, and yet you're here. And like really aggressively defending <laughs> You want to see them get really pissed off. You start referring to them as European Americans and watch the face drop. It's really right. Yeah, I've never been Mm. out of Texas. How dare you? But there's a sense of the Gilded Age, and now even that like has become its own TV show, right? Like the Americans looking back on this history. I have a pet theory that a lot of this is basically closet white supremacy that is hearkening or like desperate for a point in history where they look back and say, and if they have a TV show about it, it's okay to have an all white cast. Because suddenly that's, like, well, that's the reality. Cool. That's yeah, reality. Well, I know, but come on, Audra McDonald as uh, the matriarch of a black family at the Gilded Age. Yeah. They did have. They had forced of that narrative in there. in Brooklyn in a brownstone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like living in a brownstone. I mean, that was also a direct result of the conversations that the writers and the actors themselves were having during the uh, Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. Mm-hmm. One of the actors said, "Well, you need to expand." this character's history, it like feels. And so they brought in, then they wrote in Audra McDonald's character and stuff. Because you've got like Carrie Coons, who I'm sure is, I just am convinced she's profoundly embarrassed that she's doing the show in the first place because they have all these behind the scenes shots of her and she's in her gown, but she'll be like sitting on a toilet eating pizza. Like that's the image she wants you to see of her in relation to the Gilded Age. Just like she's going, "Mm, I'm just getting paid. I mean, there's a direct correlation between the way that, um, the new Ariel Haley, uh, Halle Bailey, I think her name is. Yes. Um, oh, of the, the Disney princess. The, the Disney, there's a direct correlation between the discomfort with having a princess of color and mm-hmm. the way the 
royals exist. Absolutely. It's the same one because they're treating fictional and real princesses of color the same way. Right. And it's stunning to me that no one can, can see how, how openly it's being done. Right. How do British royals or white royals, British royals, refer to somebody who is a royalty of color? Person, Do you know, have you experienced this? Have you seen them? I'm not exactly sure because some of the only roles I know, for example, India still, um, or actually even in Pakistan, there are a few princely states that still have roles. They don't have um, access to their palaces or their uh, estates because when uh, independence was declared, some of them had to either go with Pakistan or they went to India. A lot of their assets also then became nationalized. And then over the years, India had nationalized more. So I've met um, people who are technically princesses and maharajas, um, and have titles, and they have most of them have turned their ancestral houses into hotels. Mm. Um, I wouldn't know how they refer to them, but they probably have their their own titles. Um, and protocol well, they, is such a huge part of it. It's like Versailles, right? Like there's no real reason to have these rules other than that the abiding by the rule becomes this form of control. <laughs> I, mean, I curtsy in front of the queen, actually. Did you? <laughs> Yeah, because I didn't know. So, like, my first instinct was to go into this deep ballerina bow, and I remember my sister hit my bum, and I went, I went back into a bow. How no old one are you? Me. I was twelve. I was twelve. Oh, perfect. Like, now that you bring up a lot of, the, so for example, my own family's lineage, the name and stuff came from Maharaja Ranjit Singh. So he was a Maharaja. That line died out, but there are others, and you kind of sense this. My school was a perfect example of that. They would, it was eventually, it was actually made for 12 princes. And so they take the crown princes of these princely states, kidnap them essentially, and bring them in, not kidnap, but like they'd bring them voluntarily in the pomp and ceremony because they would not have to give up any of that. But what they'd have to do is claim allegiance to the queen so that they are a subsect royal, right? Like they're not royals. In, they're no, so to answer your question, it's not a direct um, equality. There's a hierarchy established. And right. the Queen Queen Victoria, for example, has there's so many examples of her basically adopting these bids. They call them adopted. It felt a little bit like a human zoo in which she'd bring people from all across the world, like uh, the colonies, and she then they would be her godchildren. But essentially, it's like they're not. you're not adopting them because they're sweet mm. little urchins you found on the these street. You're orphans. adopting them. You're controlling their, 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 um, their kingdoms and their money and their... And yeah. their courtiers and stuff like that. It is quite insidious. And in that way, particularly, I guess, when I look for brown representation, given how much of an outsized influence colonial history has on my own sense of history, in which I grew up thinking then of English as my language, mm-hmm. as much as Urdu, right? It was not until later that you're told, we're allowed to claim India as our dominion, but you're not allowed to claim Shakespeare as yours. Yeah. That's different. You right. can't claim this. And that was very kind of disturbing to me early on because it set up this dissonance. And um, one of the things that I found when I was looking for representation was that the only version I found was this indoctrinized, these these orphans, literally, who had to be raised by the English monarchy because their parents had been killed or their parents had been deposed or whatever. And essentially, it's it's very violent. It's very deliberate. And it's very... It's very um, racist (laughs) the reason i also bring this up is because i think the first time this is the first time in several hundred years that monarchs from any other kingdom have been invited to a coronation in england when grace kelly married they wouldn't go to that wedding in monaco because the queen decided they hadn't didn't have enough provenance for her to leave the to, to send anybody nobody was allowed to go because we couldn't even acknowledge these people as royal because that was not legitimate royalty. But 
this time, mm. you could see there were, I mean, they put the king of um, Sweden, I think, up the front. They had a bunch of other monarchs there. And it smacked of that moment when, you know, when Trump was like saying, oh, yeah, Kim Jong-il is pretty good at his job. And oh, look at Putin. Look, that's a leader. It's the aspiring dictators connecting with each other. He, Trump's like saying, please notice me. But it's this idea that you have to consolidate power through association. Mm-hmm. And where the original idea with the coronation was that you don't have any other monarchs there. And they say it's because they want the monarch to have a moment by themselves. And it's like, sure, a moment by yourself, yourself with 2,000 people in a cathedral. But it's also like, no, you did that because you were hierarchy. You, didn't, you wanted to be the most important person in the room. But now you've got to consolidate power. So you're bringing in all these other heads of state. And it's interesting. It happens when power is not power, but power is popularity. Mm. Yeah. And it is that thing where when one of them falls, the others worry about it too. Like during the French Revolution, a lot of, a lot of royal houses fell um, during the First War, World War, like Yugoslavia. Hungary and Greece, all of them, like so many of the... That's exactly yeah. why... I mean, it keeps coming back to this, which is they are singular in the sense that they have an outsized influence, not only on British culture, but world culture. Um, and, but they um, are concerned and Princess Anne can say she's not worried about the monarchy all she wants. That's obviously the party line. I think Charles is probably petrified that it will dissolve under him. I think the Queen just wanted to get out while it was still intact so she didn't... Her name wasn't the last. I, I don't think that there'll ever be a situation. I mean, they'll keep them along. They'll never be private citizens. They'll always be. I mean, but like even with the emperor of China, who went from being the son of heaven to being a gardener in communist China, even in his last days, people were still coming to his hospital bed to bow down before him. Oh, yeah. Decade last pose. So there's a level of credibility with people that you will never wash out. Whether their presence is going to be guaranteed in the future is something that I think relies... For example, if we're talking about Charles, I think the man is what in his mid seventies now, right? So we can imagine that it's, the reign will not last beyond the next fifteen years. Right. Twenty-five. His family never die; they all die at a hundred. He's got twenty-five years left. Long-lived parents and great healthcare it leads to a certain longevity. But I have a feeling that people are. If we're talking about this um, tide turning, just generally, right? Like even in America, anyone thinking about the irrelevance of the monarchy, I'm not sure that extends down to the children of Diana. I wonder if you had a really, really popular figure like Diana in power is the queen, whether people would be just like, this is fabulous. But also when people die, when a generation dies, when people over the age of 70 die, and there are a lot of them, like in America, there's an equivalent, I, I often think with gay marriage, there's a, there's a number of people that are just never going to move on. Change will happen when that generation dies, not when they change their mind. Same with in, in England. The popularity yeah. of the royal family amongst people aged 18 to 25 or something has gone down 35 points for the last 10 years. Right. 70% yeah. of the rating in 2012, 2013 to 35 now. But it remains at like 70, 80 with people over the age of 65. So when they die, there'll just be this population that the interest will just have suddenly sunk. But I imagine that it'll be a gradual kind of death. Um, and at a certain point, I imagine one of the great, one of the grandchildren will just say, it's not appropriate. I'm going to walk away, and then it'll well, turn. Many into- of them are, and that's what they, a lot of young people are reflecting. Have the same views as everyone else in the Commonwealth outside of England, which is that Meghan Markle was in fact treated terribly by them because it's a racist organization. Can I also say one thing that happened? One of the horses 
that pulled the golden coach was named Meg. And it seems like an oversight, or maybe it wasn't. One of the BBC announcers said, surely they could have chosen a different horse. Mm. Like so. They definitely. What, you know, I mean, we're talking about, they, they are not intelligent people. <laughs> like there's this projection that they know what they're doing. I think the moment anyone saw the Prince Andrew interview, like, oh, no, yeah. I don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Or, for that matter, Princess Diana or something, right? She was just empathetic. I mean, now when you look back on it, a kind of um, mercenary, saccharine performance of, of, of oh, I, I never knew this would be the, the case. Like, well, what did you think was going to, like, no one thinks that you marry royalty, but that's the fantasy, right? Like, the, mm-hmm. you're marrying for love. And, and Diana had actual a couple of moments she was the touching of the person with the age. touching of the age, for gay men particularly, that moment. And also just with people of color as well, you could see her interacting, physically interacting with people. Yeah. The rest of them weren't. And I think honestly, until, and this is true in America as much as it is here, but unless white supremacy is addressed as the root cause and um, reason for the manifestation of this, of, of any of these pomp and ceremonial things that happen, whether it's the fucking White House, which is still a very problematic name for me, but like uh, the idea or, or Buckingham Palace, right? Like that conversation, it's, perhaps a little bit overdue, but it's also, I'm not sure it can happen without some kind of very, very um, real, for example, Barbados asking for reparations. Like that's one thing for the Caribbean colonies to start asking for reparations is one thing. I think when Egypt and India and Pakistan start asking for reparations, it would be, that's what, or, you know, like African colonies or whether like the sugar king, like I think Jamaica and places like that, like, there's, if you're talking about dollar terms, and people don't like to talk about dollar terms, but if you're talking in dollar terms, how much they would have to give back. And they don't need to, right? You just need an apology. But I don't think you're going to get that. I mean, it took the Canadians... But what, you need to apologize with something behind it, with action behind it, you know. You can't have an apology and then have people of colour earning 25% less than people... Of, you know, just, the whole system continues anyway. It would have been a different thing had Meghan Markle being a successful member of the royal family. Oh, successful is a weird word to use, but if she had been remained in the royal family, mm-hmm. yeah, I think because also the idea that the prince, uh, Prince Harry walked away has kind of given permission to, or even her, the fact that she went into it and said, yep, nope, this is not my, this is not my problem. Right. Bye-bye. And then walked the other way, gave permission to everyone else saying, oh, the fact that we were born with this history or thought about this or told that this is part of it, you can walk away too. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to think about it in that way. That's a great place to end because it's, it's so true. I don't know like what the English are going to do now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, well, it's all on Louis now. He's the ultimate spare. Actually, we didn't give Louis any credit. He just sat there yawning and talking the whole way through. He tends to kind of be the symbol of like our boredom. Like, wait, yeah, the kid gets it. Thank you, Kamel, for joining us. Very much appreciate your take. We are looking forward to reading your book when it comes out. When is it coming out? It's next year, uh, right? Yeah, well, the book is tentatively August 2024. It's a memoir about growing up gay in Pakistan and still through, and New York, and still through musical theater and uh, and an obsessive love of foods and man boobs. So that's mm-hmm. where I should... You'll have to come back and talk to us when it comes out next year. I'd love to. I'd love to. Thank okay. you so much. This podcast was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Felt. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. 
Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And if you can, please head to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It's just a little thing you can do, and it makes such a difference for us to get the word out about our show. Thanks for listening.